Judy, thank you. Super thankful for you. It's cold out. I'm going to talk a little faster than normal to stay warm. If you need to jump up and down and do some jumping jacks at some point, especially you, Jack Laninga, jumping jacks. So Pastor Jeff and I have been smashing together two things, the Beatitudes of Jesus, his way of describing a blessed or a flourishing life in God's presence, and some of the behaviors that help us experience as we open ourselves to that blessing. The Beatitude for this morning is this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. I wonder when Jesus first said this, if anybody jumped in when Jesus got only six words out of his mouth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Wait a minute, is what I would want to say. When does it ever feel good or blessed to be hungry or thirsty? Do you enjoy that experience? Have you ever been really, really hungry or thirsty? That question cast my mind back about 15 or 16 years when I was living in California. Took a 25-mile hike one day. It was getting late in the evening. Drove out of Yosemite uh, National Park with a couple friends. We were on our way to an In-N-Out Burger, an awesome West Coast restaurant in the city of Modesto, California. As we pulled into In-N-Out, it was closed for some reason. Something was going on. By our level of hunger... I was less wise then, didn't pack adequate food or water for the day. I was so hungry and so looking forward to multiple In-N-Out burgers that, I mean, the word hangry was hardly in the English language yet, but that was a deep experience of hangriness. You know, kind of superficial, burned so many calories that day. I was starving and I was angry with my friends. Being hungry or thirsty is not a blessed state of affairs, is it? Are you at your nicest? Are you at your best when you're starving, when you're super thirsty? But hearing these words for Jesus actually gives me a deeper cause for resistance and protest. What are you saying, Jesus? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I have spent much of my adult Christian life thinking that it was God's calling on me, especially as a pastor, because we're supposed to be super Christians, to minimize my needs to minimize my hungers and thirsts, to downplay my personal desires and preferences. Any of you all lifelong Christians ever got that message? That's what we're supposed to be doing? Just say no to everything that you would want. We're supposed to sacrifice those things, right? In Jesus' name? It is true that we have a lot of off-target and unhealthy desires, and indeed, we are right to reform and reframe all of those things. But Jesus says specifically that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It turns out that not all of our desires are unhealthy and un off target. Some of our desires, especially as we grow up and get more mature in Jesus' name, are holy desires that need to be nurtured and maximized and leaned into and encouraged. Following Jesus does not mean that we are meant to deny our God-given needs and desires. When we are honest and aware of what we are personally lacking and missing, of what our world is lacking and missing, when we name those things and long for those things and experience holy dissatisfaction for those things, it actually invites space for God to move in and satisfy those needs. There is a blessedness in knowing what we are missing and being super honest about it. In America in 2020, 
some of our deepest longings are for connection and community. Amen? Do a jumping jack if you're in agreement, right? <laughs> right? We are all missing each other. We are missing so many of our experiences of being together face-to-face and in proximity with each other. For some of us, this healthy desire manifests itself in increasing impatience to be together in our old and familiar ways, to be back indoors in that sanctuary, worshiping the way we have for years and years and years, right? For some of us, this healthy desire manifests itself in wanting to protect others, right? By keeping a safe distance, by wearing masks at all times, by not rushing things forward. I'm trying to honor the fact that we have different approaches uh, based on the same deep, healthy, God-given desire for us to experience full community together. That healthy desire actually underlies some of our deepest political differences and divides these days, right? We both want the same thing in the end on both sides of the aisle. In the church, even though we have different approaches, we still have the same basic healthy desire for being together. What if you allowed yourself to get really desperately hungry? What if you allowed yourself to get really desperately thirsty for God's priorities in your own life? Could you allow yourself to do that? I'm going to tell you a short story about a college acquaintance of mine who got literally desperately thirsty. Um, This college friend of mine is from Egypt, and uh, when they were a younger person, they took a trip to the south of Egypt, and we're going to head out into the Sahara Desert um, with a small group of friends and family members, hired guides, a couple armed guards. This is Egypt, the whole nine yards. They were going to travel three and a half days into the desert by camel to a famous well called the Bir Shaitun. And as their trek began, the temperature soared to more than 110 degrees in the shade, except in the Sahara Desert, there is no shade. So it was 110 degrees plus everywhere. Doesn't that sound lovely right now? 110 degrees. On their way, one of the three camels that was carrying their baggage and tents had this huge goat-skin water bag tied to the backside of the camel, and this goat-skinned water bag sprung a leak. And by the time they got to the end of their first day, no one had noticed because this camel was in the back, this bag was empty. So the only water they had was the personal water that they were all carrying. And they still had two plus days to go to make it to this well. They decided to journey on. The next day, it was 112 degrees. The third day, it was 115 degrees. They pressed on toward this promised well, this promised oasis in the desert. Their guide promised that this well never ran dry and that they would survive because they would make it there. My friend remembers that eating on the third day was totally impossible. Said that just swallowing was like rubbing two pieces of sandpaper together and then recognizing that the two pieces of sandpaper were the two sides of your throat. Their vision became blurred, walking became a struggle, and they knew that if the well was dry at this oasis, their armed guards would probably ride a couple days back on their camels and leave them out in the desert to die. I mean, this is super thirsty. My friend remembered thinking about this verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Being so desperately, physically thirsty. 
Thankfully, this party of travelers managed to strangle, str- stagger into Beer Shaitun, and they drank what they called the wine of God. This is what the desert tribesmen call a well, the wine of God. It was into this Middle Eastern world that Jesus spoke these words, Blessed are you when you are thirsty and hungry, that level of thirst and hunger for righteousness. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who have righteous lives and maintain a pretty righteous lifestyle. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are you when you maintain a desperate hunger and a desperate thirst for righteousness. What if we were that thirsty? I mean, that three days in the desert, you can't even put anything in your mouth kind of thirst for spiritual growth, for personal transformation, for societal justice and transformation. That is the kind of maturity and righteousness that Jesus is pointing to here. Spiritual maturity is not denying or downplaying every desire in your life. It turns out that spiritual maturity is actually organizing your life around achieving the deep, deep, deep hungers and thirsts that God has put into your life. What do you think Jesus' deepest thirst was for? That's a great question, right? What drove Jesus to do what he did? Sermon is too short. I'm not going to answer this question. (laughs) If you're a young person, you might think, if I allow myself to be really thirsty for personal transformation, for social transformation? Like, Pastor Greg, am I not going to live the most disappointed life ever? Because things can change slowly. Yes, there's some truth in that. Things can change alarmingly slowly. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, the arc of the moral universe is long. Things change slowly. But that arc bends toward justice. All things being equal, God is at work in the universe, and he is slowly redeeming and restoring and healing things. Think about this societal change in the midst of 2020. The issue of racial conflict, and specifically here in the United States of America, slavery. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We have writings from human civilizations for more than 3,000 years, okay? In all of these 3,000 years, we as human beings have been making slaves of one another. Sometimes for tribal reasons, sometimes for genetic reasons, you just have the wrong blood, sometimes, as in the United States of America, for racial reasons. In every case, it has been morally wrong. But we have been doing this. It's the default setting for human beings for 3,000 years. It has only been in the last 200 plus years that we as human beings have had a moral awakening, a collective moral awakening to say, you know what? This is wrong. Human beings should not do this to one another. How did this idea make it into human civilization? It's because this idea from the beginning of the book of Genesis. Is there a message from above? All right. 
It's because this idea from the book of Genesis that we are all made in the image of God and therefore have inherent dignity and rights and respect that we ought to offer each other. It's because this old idea from the Bible has finally filtered into enough of human beings and human culture that it has woken us up to the fact that slavery is always wrong. And entire countries, not only individuals, not only families, not only tribes, but entire countries and now our entire planet almost is awake to this deeply biblical idea. Did it happen overnight? Are we all the way there yet? No, no, and no. The moral arc of the universe is long, but in the case of this huge, deep, horrible issue, it is bending toward justice. Look at our church these days. 70 years ago at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, it was not possible to have people who grew up Lutheran, people who grew up Roman Catholic, people who were born in South America, people who were born in Africa, people who were born in Asia to worship under the roof of this one little congregation. In 2020, praise God, this is possible, right? Some of our old differences and divisions are slowly being healed and God is creating a more beautiful and diverse body all over the globe these days and it is happening even in the midst of our congregation. I'm super thankful to be alive in 2020, rather than 1820, rather than 1420, rather than 620 A.D. Whenever God's children gather at table together, whenever we hunger and thirst and come together, God is praised and Jesus is honored. Pastor Jeff, get us into this more specifically about how God's vision for us to come together this way reflects this deeper hunger and thirst. All right, did you see the wind of the Spirit blew over all the mic stands when you were preaching? So that's, that's a big-time sermon, right? Huh? We haven't seen that before, have we? All right. So as Jesus spoke to his audience that day on the hillside, I think that they didn't probably totally get it, but he was actually standing before them representing what righteousness and shalom was in the flesh. He took these abstract theological concepts and words that had been in the Hebrew Scriptures, righteousness, and he made them alive through his life. So John says it this way, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the story of Jesus in a nutshell, but much more. It shows the missiology of Jesus, why he came to us and how he came to us. He comes in the flesh full of grace and truth, and he enters into third spaces, non-religious spaces, and he makes friends there. And in his friendships, through those friendships, he puts on display what righteousness and shalom actually look like. He shows people in tangible ways, this is what it means to be righteous. This is what righteousness feels like. If you're hungry for this, hang out with me, because I know what it's all about. I've experienced it. You can experience it too. This is called an incarnational model for living your life in the world as a Christian. It's making the truth in the flesh with your life. So how did Jesus live this out? Well, there's this great verse in Luke 7, verse 34. It says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know what Jesus did? He ate with people. 
He had meals with people. He sat across the table from them. He became their friend. Now, why did that irritate the religious leader so much? Because it was totally opposite of what they thought he should be doing. It was counterintuitive. Jesus hung out with people that nobody else hung out with. He had dinner with the prostitutes. He ate with the tax collectors. He hung out with the publicans. He sat at tables with peasants. Everybody else who had been written off by the religious folks, Jesus made them his friends. To put it simply, the least religious people loved Jesus, and he loved them back by eating and drinking with them. In the Middle Eastern context, to share a meal with someone automatically meant you accepted them. Hospitality of this kind showed love for the stranger. Most people in Jesus' day were good Jewish people, and they had all kinds of rules about who they would eat at a table with. They had to eat the right kind of food. They had to have the right kind of clothes, the right kind of hair, the right kind of life, right? People that agree with them, people that went to their synagogue. Those are the people that Jewish people ate with. Jesus? Nope. He took all those boundaries down and he ate with everybody. He knew that people were hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and he wanted to show them what that was all about through his life. So he ate with them. Now, if we're really honest, church people are not that different than the old Jewish people, the religious folks. We tend to hang out with our own kind, true? Eat with people that we like, that are like us, that believe what we believe, that think the way we think, right? They have the same holiness beliefs that we have. Now, being holy is good. Jesus actually cleans us up when we are made holy, right? When we find him, he cleans us up. But Unfortunately, those holiness behaviors get focused on a lot of external behaviors instead of becoming incarnational presence of Christ in the world. So we need to learn how to do the same thing Jesus did and make friends with people who have not experienced this righteousness. You and I, who have and know Jesus, we've experienced his righteousness. We need to sit with them at table and help them find a solution to their hunger and thirst. So I love this verse. Jesus came eating and drinking. It's not just a nice verse. It's his methodology. It's his strategy. Why did he do this? Because he came to seek and to save what was lost. And how would he do it? It would begin with a meal. Now, sociology is a study of how human beings relate to each other. There's so many cultures all over the world. There's no one way we can relate. But one thing that's interesting to me, no matter what culture you're from, eating is a universal thing, isn't it? I mean, seriously, you can sit at a table with anybody from any culture, no matter what their belief system or what they do or how they grew up, and you can eat with them. It's kind of cool that eating is a way we can actually make a big difference in the world. Eating with people is a way we can actually change and heal the world. Yeah, we can bless the world by having meals with people, inviting them to our table and making this kingdom, this righteousness visible through our lives across the table. That's amazing. Henry Nouwen said this. Okay, I'm going to read this quote to you. We all need to eat and drink to stay alive. But having a meal is more than eating and drinking. It is celebrating the gifts of life we share. A meal together is one of the most intimate and sacred human events. Around the table, we become vulnerable, filling one another's plates and cups and encouraging one another to eat and drink. Much more happens at a meal than satisfying hunger and quenching thirst. Around a table, we become family, friends, community, yes, a body. The table is one of the most intimate places in our lives. It is there that we give ourselves to one another. 
When we say, take some more, let me serve you another plate, let me pour you another glass, don't be shy, enjoy it. We say a lot more than our words express. We invite our friends to become part of our lives. We want them to be nurtured by the same food and drink that nurture us. We desire communion. Do you know that they studied um, National Merit Scholars? High school kids who were National Merit Scholars. They wanted to write a book that would give parents the formula for making a National Merit Scholar out of your kid. They studied thousands of National Merit Scholars. They came up with only one common denominator among all those kids, thousands of them. You know what it was? They ate dinner with their parents. Eating together is powerful. Kids who eat with their parents, their lives are better. There's all kinds of research on this. Can you imagine if people out there that are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, especially in a time like this, if we actually ate with them, we might be able to change their life, change their perspective, show them what righteousness is all about. In the West, we think of our homes as kind of a place of privacy and refuge. We keep people more at a distance. In the East, where they wrote the Bible, they brought people close. Yeah, they ate together. Social space became spiritual space. Think of Jesus. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for a meal. He eats with Matthew's friends. The earliest church, Acts 2.42 says, Every day they continued to meet together in their temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now some of you are thinking, Client, do you understand right now we're in a pandemic? Have you, have you heard about this? <laughs> yes, I have. And I get it right now, eating together with people that are strangers is even more scary than it was before. Right? Because they might be carrying the virus. Or we might be carrying the virus. You know, guys, we can't let that totally shut us down. right? we got to get creative. We have to figure out how to eat together with people. This is a way for us to bless the world. Now, I don't know if you know this, but most of us eat somehow, somewhere in the neighborhood of 21 meals a week. True? I mean, maybe we don't all eat breakfast or whatever, but 21 meals a week, we're kind of eating and doing our thing. What if you gave three of those meal times to eating with someone who was a stranger? What if you tried to bless a neighbor, a coworker, someone at your gym, I don't know, someone that God put across your path, give three of those 21 meal times to eating with somebody else who's a stranger and trying to help them see this righteousness that you understand because you know Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be awesome. We should probably be the best party throwers in the world, Christians. Seriously. Jesus went to all kinds of parties. We should probably be the best. Now, the ultimate table that Jesus ever ate at, the ultimate table he ever invited anyone to come to him with, is this table. He said to everyone in the world, you're welcome at this table. If you're broken, if you're messed up, if you failed, if you haven't measured up to the way God intended you to kind of live your life, if deep inside, because of all that, you're hungry and thirsty for life to be whole and full and right, you can come here to this table. Yeah. We're all invited. And at this table, 
After giving thanks to his father, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember me. Remember that I will fill you in a way that no one else on planet earth can fill you. So right now, would you take your bread with me? Break off a piece, or maybe you already just have one piece, I think. <laughs> and let's take and eat this together at this table with Jesus. same way, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, know that your sins have been washed away, your life has been cleansed, and you have been forgiven. Let's take and drink the cup together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and showing us what righteousness really is. Thank you that we have discovered that by getting to know you. Lord Jesus, as the Father sent you, you now sent us. So Lord, help us to take this message across tables in the world and show others in the flesh what it looks like to be in the presence of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.